Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Uh, Good to see you all online. Even though I can't see you, I know you're there. I'm Pastor Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. Uh, I know some of you have heard a bit of my story, but um, back in the summer of 2004, I was staying in a student dormitory in the mountains of Slovakia, of all places, in uh, Eastern Europe. I was on a mission with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, It was in between my junior and senior year of college, and I was miserable. It had been a really, really difficult summer. Uh, I didn't, uh, I had a hard time with the culture of the country uh, and adapting to that culture. I was frustrated with some of the people on uh, my team there that summer, and uh, we just weren't seeing a lot of fruit in our ministry. It was a real slog during those summer months. But honestly, I was wrestling with something bigger than all of that. I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my life? I had grown up with a dad who was a pastor, and he's a really good man. The church that he pastored that we were a part of was a really uh, good and healthy community of people. But um, I didn't really want that for my own life. I had uh, different dreams, I had different ambitions, different desires, and as I was staring my uh, senior year of college in the face and trying to figure out um, what I was going to do, I just wasn't interested in pursuing any kind of vocational ministry. Uh, and, and to, you know, to be clear, that would have been fine because vocational ministry isn't for everybody. It's not something that, that every Christian has to consider. The problem was for me is that it, it had become very, very clear that this was the direction God was leading me. Uh, this was the direction that God was uh, leading my life. And I fought him hard on it. I, I, I fought him hard. I had my narratives, I had my, my reasons and my justifications. But one afternoon, as I was sitting in that dorm room that summer, God broke through all of those things. Um, God showed up and he spoke to my spirit. And it was a moment that forever has changed my life. It's a moment where God showed up in a way and redirected where I thought I was going and what I thought I was supposed to be doing into the direction he wanted me to go and the life and the work that he had in store for me. And, you know, it wasn't a conversion moment, so to speak, but God in that moment opened my heart up to something that I had previously been closed off to. And it changed everything for me. Changed my life. It changed my future family. Uh, It changed my uh, uh, the the relationships that I would have, the people that I would uh, be able to minister to and influence. This church community that I now help lead. As we have walked through the Book of Acts for the last few months, we have continually come back to Jesus's words in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, 
before he leaves this earth, he gathers his closest friends to him, his followers, his disciples, and he tells them, you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to witness to me the good news that I have come here to proclaim, the works that I have done, the life with God under the rule of God that is represented in me and can be found through me. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the rest of the world. And what we have seen throughout Luke's narrative is that that has begun to take place. That the good news of the kingdom has spread out not to simply locate geographic locations, but to real people living in those places. We saw it in Acts chapter 2 when uh, Greek-speaking Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for a festival heard the good news of the kingdom of God in their own language and believed. We saw that in Acts chapter 8, that because of persecution by uh, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem towards followers of Jesus, that they spread out, that they left Jeru- many of them left Jerusalem because of this persecution. And we read in chapter 8 of a man named Philip going into the region of Samaria and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to fringe Jews, to second-class Jews. And they believed. And today, in our passage, we are going to see it happen again. We're going to see a non-Jew, a Gentile, living in the center of Roman power in Judea, hear the good news of the kingdom and believe. And each time, each time, the door to the kingdom is unlocked in a different location to a different group of people, there is one man holding the keys. It's Peter. It's the Apostle Peter. In our passage this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to read through Acts 10 and into the beginning of chapter 11. What I think what you're going to see is how significant this moment is in its own time and its own place. We're also going to see how significant it is to the mission of the church, as Luke lays it out here in this book. And we are also going to see how significant this event is to our lives and to our mission today as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ here in this city, in this time, and in this place. Because remember, this is not just their story. It's our story as well. This episode was a turning point in Peter's life. It changed his life. It changed the direction of his life. And it also changed who and what the church would become in the years and the centuries and the generations to come. So turn with me to Acts chapter 10 if you're not already there. And I want to begin by reading the first 23 verses here of this chapter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, 
a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Let's stop right there. So we're introduced by Luke to this man named Cornelius, who was a centurion. He was a Roman. He was a Roman soldier. And so he wasn't welcome in these parts by Jews. He was an occupier. He was an invader. He was an unwelcomed guest. But because he was a centurion, he was a man of high status. He was a man who held a lot of influence because of his position in the Roman army and in the Roman government. And he lived in the city, Caesarea, which was an important Roman port city. And it was a central government location in the region of Judea. But what Luke also tells us is that this man was a devout, God-fearing man. He was a man who uh, gave to the poor and to the needy. He was a man who spent regular time praying to God. But he wasn't praying to all of the Roman gods. He was praying to the Jewish God. He was a devout, God-fearing man who believed that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Jewish scriptures, 
was the one true God. And as he is, as he is praying, Luke records that he has a vision. God, uh, an angel of God, comes to him in a vision. And he affirmed the worship of Cornelius. He affirmed that his prayers, that his acts of, of giving to the poor and to the needy were pleasing to God. And because he feared God, because he was aligning himself with what God says was good and what God said was right, God was coming to him. I think it's important for us to understand that God will sometimes come to those who actively oppose him. Like we saw in the last few weeks in Paul or Saul's story, murdering the church. And God steps in and redirects Paul's life. God will also sometimes come to those who are indifferent to him. But God will always come to those who seek him. God will always come to those who are seeking him. To those who cry out for help. To those who cry out for salvation and for deliverance. God will come to them. To those searching for the truth and trying to make sense of this world and of who God is. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch searching the scriptures, trying to understand God shows up. To those who are aligning themselves, even if they don't know it, with what God says is good and what God says is right. God will show up to those who are seeking him. But what is interesting here is God doesn't simply show up in a vision or a dream. God doesn't just show up with a miracle. God shows up to those who seek him through his own people. God shows up to those who are seeking him through his own people. Cornelius, I hear your prayers. I see your life. It is good. It is pleasing. Now go sin for Peter because I've got something to say to you. And that's what Cornelius does. He sends some men from his house to Joppa to find Peter. Meanwhile, Peter is staying with this man, Simon, who's a tanner of, of leather goods. He's a leather worker. And Peter goes up in this house to the top of the roof to spend some time alone with God in prayer. And Peter, who is in so many ways a man after my own heart, is praying and gets hungry while he's praying. He's got food on the brain. He's hungry. And in that moment, God shows up to Peter in a vision as well. And as Peter is, is, uh, is led by the Spirit into this trance, into this vision, he sees this sheet coming down out of heaven. You know, picture like this big awning or like a ship's sail laid out flat. And it's full of all kinds of different animals. And Peter hears a voice as he's seeing this sheet come down out of heaven. He hears this voice saying, Peter, pick an animal and eat it for lunch. And as if it was a reflex, Peter says, absolutely not. No way. I'm not doing that. 
because I have never eaten anything unclean or impure in my entire life. Now, if you know what's going on here, you understand how big of a deal this was for Peter, because this was a real sticking point for the Jewish people. They were folks who strictly enforced and strictly followed Old Testament or Mosaic dietary laws. And you can read all about those in Leviticus chapter 11. If you remember a few years ago, we went through the book of Exodus and we saw how God interacted with his people, Israel, in those days. And what God was doing was carving out for them an identity as his people among all of the other nations that they were surrounded by. And God taught his people through various laws and restrictions and and different traditions and, and, and practices that they were distinct, that they were different from all of the other nations of the earth because their God was distinct and different from all the other gods that were worshiped across the earth. And in these dietary laws, God laid out certain animals that were okay to eat and certain animals that they had to stay away from. And if they touched these animals or if they ate clean animals that were, that were uh, exposed to these unclean animals, that there were certain things that they had to do because they were to keep themselves pure, distinct, set apart for God and for his work. And Peter, like any other Jew of his day, took these restrictions very seriously. So when he saw this sheet coming down out of heaven, and he saw unclean animals and clean animals rubbing shoulders together, mixing in that sheet together, what he saw was a whole lot of impurity and uncleanness that he wasn't about to touch. And so he tells God, no. I am not going to do this. And I don't know, maybe Peter thought that this was a test. Maybe God was showing up and giving him a test to see how faithful Peter was going to be in this situation. But he immediately refuses this invitation to kill and to eat. And God responds by doing what so often God does, by pulling his God card. You do not tell me what is clean and what is unclean. I tell you what is clean and what is unclean, and I'm telling you to eat. Now, for most of us, well, I think we'd like to think that would be enough. Okay, God, I screwed up. All right, I'm going to do this. But what's interesting here is that Luke tells us that this happened three times, that this back and forth happened three times. Peter and God going back and forth and God telling Peter, no, I've said this is clean. I've said this is clean. I've said this is clean. You can eat it. I think sometimes we fail to understand how deep our cultural identity and its traditions run in our lives. This is what's happening here in Peter's case. His religious an ethnic and cultural identity told him that there were certain things that he could eat and not eat. And even the Lord God showing him that, 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 that there was a new way to think, that there was a different way to see this, 
wasn't enough in this moment. Peter resisted. And this is even more staggering when we recognize or when we remember that back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has this same back and forth with the Pharisees of his day. They challenge Jesus. Why do your disciples eat without washing their hands? Why do your disciples do this and do that? And, you know, this was a constant back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. Why do you not insist that your disciples adhere to all of these traditions and rituals that our people practice? And in that moment, Jesus responds by telling these leaders that no food in and of itself is impure. Because the only thing that defiles a person or makes a person truly impure is what comes out of their heart. Food cannot defile a person. Food cannot make a person unclean before God. But what comes out of our heart, the true condition of our heart and who we are, that is what defiles and makes us impure. And so here's Peter. After all that he had been through with Jesus, after all that he had been taught by Jesus and experienced with Jesus, all of the transformation that he had seen taking place in his life, all of the things the Spirit was doing in and through him in this moment as a leader of this church, these followers of Jesus Christ, He still can't see through the outward forms of his religious and cultural traditions to what God was telling him was good and what was right. Well, he was confused. He was trying to figure out what in the world did this mean when there's a knock on the door or at the gate and there are strangers calling out to him. And the Spirit directs him downstairs to open that door to talk to these men and to go off with them to meet this stranger that had sent for him. This is the one thing that I keep coming back to in the life of Peter. Despite all of his flaws, despite all of his stubbornness, despite all of the ways that he sticks his foot in his mouth over and over and over again, He consistently proves to be a man that is sensitive to the Spirit of God, who is open to hearing from God, to being challenged by God, and to following God's direction in his life. Are we open to God's direction? I talked about this last week. Are we open to our assumptions? our traditions, our ways of thinking? Are we open to those being challenged? Being exposed? Are we open for God to redirect us and to open our hearts to something that maybe previously we were closed off to? Peter goes with these men to meet this man, Cornelius. Let's pick it back up in verse 24. The next day, or at the end of verse 23, the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. 
The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Listen to this. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying and At this hour, at three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of all the living and the dead. All the prophets testify testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. While Peter was still speaking, These words, still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who believe, all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they heard him speaking in tongues, heard them speaking in tongues, and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely, No one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So when Peter arrived at Cornelius' house, that vision of all the animals, that interaction with God came into clear view for Peter. A Jew, a very religious Jew, had entered the house of a non-Jew, a very Roman non-Jew. And the significance of this moment was not lost 
on Peter. Because he declares to them, what would make me unclean in my tradition and with my people is exactly how God is going to speak to you. What would make me unclean entering your house, eating with you, spending time with you, is how God wants to speak to you. And in that message, Peter stands before Cornelius and his household and communicates the inclusive, the inclusive exclusivity of the gospel. The inclusive exclusivity of the gospel. That there is good news to be heard. And that good news is to be heard by all people regardless of ethnicity or culture. And that good news is that through Jesus, there is peace with God. Through Jesus, there is healing for all. Through Jesus, there is justice for all. Through Jesus, there is forgiveness for all. And even though this reality came from the Jews... Even though this reality was preached to the Jews first, it is a message for everyone. A message for everyone and for all to hear. The Holy Spirit fell on those who listened to these words. You see, they were God-fearers. They worshipped God. They followed God's ways. But they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. They had an incomplete message. They had an incomplete understanding. And in that moment, God speaks through Peter. And they believe. And they are baptized. They are filled with the same spirit that Peter and his Jewish friends from Joppa are filled with. And those friends are amazed in that moment at what they see. Their categories are blown up right before him. They are people who had done everything to separate themselves from non-Jews. Their whole life revolved around traditions that were about exclusion. Us versus them. And in this moment, that wall that had been erected through cultural traditions, through religious rituals, was torn down right before their eyes. And they could see these are people just like us, filled with the same spirit we are. There are two miraculous things that happen here in this moment. Two things that only the Spirit of God can create. The first is that Cornelius and his household entered the kingdom of God through faith. They knew and they worshiped God, but they didn't know Jesus. And in that moment, the Spirit opens their eyes and fills their hearts. The second thing, the second miracle worked by the Spirit is that for the first time, Peter recognized God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation 
the one who fears him. Generations of ethnic and cultural ritual, a paradigm of seeing the world through segregation and separation. Those things aren't easily set aside. And yet in that moment, the Spirit of God breaks it down. The Spirit of God begins to reveal what is good and what is true and what is right, what God's intention really is to Peter and to his friends. You're probably familiar with that line from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And while I think that's probably maybe a broad, painting things with a broad brush, even though it was said 60 years ago, I still think there's a lot of truth to that even today. But it's not because we are any worse than people have have ever been. Listen, we read and we affirm in our doctrine and in our theology that God is a diverse God. That creation, and specifically humanity, reflects the diversity and the difference of God himself. Three, yet one. We affirm and acknowledge that Jesus Christ came to redeem people from every tribe and from every tongue, from every nation. We affirm that the linkage between brothers and sisters in Christ is stronger than any ethnic or cultural tie. And yet, just like Peter, we struggle to get that understanding in us in a way that truly transforms the way that we live and the way that we understand this world. Just because we are Christians doesn't mean that we are not humans. Racism, ethnocentrism, cultural superiority, that comes from the heart. It doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from just forms and tradition. It comes from the heart. And it came on the scene the moment sin entered the world. It runs deep. It is part of what it means to be a human being. You know, there is not one of us in our church who hasn't already or who won't at some point have to face our own racism, and our own ethnocentrism. There is not one of us in this church who is immune to believing that the way that we connect with God is the way that everyone should connect with God. The way that we experience and worship God is the quote-unquote right way to worship and experience God. There is not one of us in this church community who is free from the danger of elevating our differences, which are good, to the only thing that matters. But here's the truth. Only the Spirit of God is powerful enough to change our hearts and to transform our way of seeing the world. Only the Spirit of God can bring about a transformation where we understand 
That all of these things we read in the Scripture, all of what is true about God, what is true about this world, what is true about us, is actually true and that we believe it in such a way that it changes our life and the way that we treat and relate to each other and to this world. Only God, through His Spirit, can do that. And as we have experienced, and as we continue to experience that in our own lives, we also have to recognize that that the same thing is true for the lives of other people. I know, because I've experienced it myself, that many of us have grieved and are grieving family members, friends, Neighbors, co-workers, people that we care and we love about, people who claim the name of Jesus, people who genuinely are seeking after God, who are blind to their own racism, who are blind to how their own cultural traditions, their own ethnocentrism affects their lives. People who are resistant to seeing the world in any other way. And while our words and our patient challenges, our encouragements are needed, we have to understand that we will never, ever be able to convince or persuade or argue these people that we love into seeing what God says is true. Only the Spirit of God can do this. I think it's easy for us in our moment today to shrug this off and to maybe believe that, well, you know, this isn't as big of a deal for us today as maybe it was 50 years ago. Or it's easy to just chalk up some of the things that we've been experiencing in our country over the last year, two years, three years, as Products of the media just whipping people into some kind of racial frenzy, trying to divide people. But folks, it's right here. It's right here in these pages. This has been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years because it's a human problem. And it's not just a white Christian problem. It's an everybody problem because we all have this and we all have to come to grips with how our own traditions, how our own cultures, how our own ethnicities can take hold in our lives to where we see the world through that lens instead of the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say is true. To ignore our own propensity to separate, segregate, discriminate, even as followers of Jesus, puts us in danger of lying about who God really is and betraying the mission that God has given His people in this world. Because of time's sake, I'm not going to read all of verses 1 through 18 of chapter 11. But word of what happened here in Caesarea, in Cornelius' house, begins to spread throughout the church in this region. And it makes its way back to Jerusalem and to the believers there in Jerusalem. And Peter travels to Jerusalem to report and to update his brothers and sisters there. 
And Luke records that when Peter shows up in Jerusalem, he is confronted by what Luke terms the circumcision party, which in my opinion are two words that should never go together. Um, These folks who were Jewish Christians, but who still believed that part of following Jesus was adhering to the religious and cultural traditions and rituals of the Jews. And so when they hear that Peter, one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, had gone into the house of an unclean man, of a Gentile man, and had eaten with this man, they come to Peter and they say, what in the world were you thinking? Help us understand what's going on here. And Peter recounts the story and tells them this is what happened. And in verse 17, he says to them, So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And Luke tells us that when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is unbelievably significant because this is the first time in public that the church of Jesus Christ affirmed that what God had promised to Abraham thousands of years before, that God was going to create from Abraham a people, a nation that God would call his own. And God was going to bless that nation for a purpose. So that that nation of God's people that were distinct, that were different, that were set apart for God himself would be a blessing to every other nation in the world. The church in Jerusalem in this moment realized that that promise was coming true. That that promise was coming true. And what we are going to see as we continue on through the book of Acts is that the bond between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. But the bond between Jewish Christians and non-Christian Jews will begin to weaken. Because up to that point, Jewish Christians had been able to peacefully coexist with other Jews because their practices and their traditions and their rituals were virtually the same. But now they're welcoming in non-Jews to their fellowship. And they will begin to affirm more and more that these people who are not ethnic Jews, they are not cultural Jews, do not have to adhere to ethnic or cultural standards to be part of the family of God. That they will be welcomed into the fellowship of Jesus Christ simply because of their relationship with Jesus and their faith in Him. A realization is taking hold in this moment that what God has created in the church is something new. It is something different. It is something distinct. But here's the thing. And we are going to see this in just a few chapters. Jewish Christians 
would still wrestle with these cultural differences. It would still be something that they would have to deal with. It would still cause friction. And what you're going to see throughout the New Testament and the letters that Paul writes to churches that were predominantly made up of non-Jews is that they would have to wrestle with the same things. That their cultural and ethnic differences would have to be laid down at the altar of Jesus Christ. That unity, pursuing the unity that God has given His people, would trump everything else and would be the lens through which they would have to live their lives. There was friction, there was struggling to work these truths out. And folks, the same thing has been and will continue to be true for us. We are no better than these Christians. We are no more evolved or enlightened than these Christians. We are still human beings who come to this fellowship with our own differences. Differences which are good and which are right, which reflect the goodness and the beauty and the diversity and the complexity of the God in which we serve, uh, the God who we serve. But differences that in our own sin and in our own selfishness can be used to wound each other, can be used in a one-upmanship with each other, can be used to put our own preferences and our own desires over what is good for each other. And so we still need humility. What I love about this story is the repentance that we see here. The repentance of Peter. Hey, the way that I used to think, I'm leaving that behind and I'm going to pursue, no matter how imperfectly, I'm still going to pursue what God says is good. The repentance of his friends that came with him to say, wow, now we see that, the, that we didn't have the full picture, but now we do. And we're going to rejoice over this. The repentance of the church in Jerusalem to say, Yes, okay, now we see what God is doing and we are going to worship and glorify God because of it. And what we will see is that repentance taking action as they continue to send people to other locations and to other people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We need that humility. We need that understanding that this is who God is, that this is what God is doing, that this is what God has called us to be in this world. Our church here, full of non-Jews, full of a bunch of Gentiles from different ethnicities and different cultures, different backgrounds, we stand on the shoulders of these folks right here. And we continue the work that God started here. And that God revealed to these folks here in Jerusalem. I want to close with this. The tensions that we see out here in our world. The racial tensions, the political divisions, the, the, the fighting and the, 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 the backbiting and just all of these things that we are experiencing. This, none of this should surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised by this. As I mentioned last week, this is what people who do not know Jesus, this is, this is how they live. This is how they 
operate. This is the way in which they see the world. They are living in darkness. But I will tell you this, the moment that we convince ourselves that that out there cannot happen in here, we are living in danger. We are still prone to live in darkness. We are still prone, as we have seen, to slide back into a way that is contradictory to the way of Jesus. We must show the world that there is a different way. We must show the world that there is a different way. And we do that by committing to continue to love each other. To show patience with each other as we work our things out. To admit when we are wrong and we have hurt one another. And to pursue forgiveness with each other. We must commit to serve one another to celebrate our differences, to learn from one another, to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is not a church that we are building, but it is a church that God's Spirit is building. And it is a church that looks like Him. However imperfect, however flawed, what God desires of us is what we see right here. A heart, a willing heart to be led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit. Going to people that maybe we would choose not to go to. Going to people with whom we have major differences with. Laying down the things that our world says are primary and important for what is really important. Life with God under the rule of God. The kingdom of God that is here, that is now, that we can experience. That is the Spirit's work in us. And I want to encourage you this morning. You are doing that work. I want to encourage you that the hard conversations you're having, the apologies and the asking for forgiveness that you're committed to, those things matter. It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's work that honestly will separate us from other people. It's work that will potentially separate us from other Christians. But it is work that we can come back to and say is rooted right here. Is rooted in what God says is true about himself. And as a church, we will be committed to that. As we come to our time in communion, this is what this is what we this is why we do this together. This is not just about what this is just, not just about me and God. That Jesus has died for me and forgiven me and it's all about me and Jesus. We do this together as Jesus did it with his disciples together. Because he told them, "You share in me." You share in me together. As I look across this congregation and I see so many different people, it's a beautiful representation as we do this together that we are one in Jesus. Because Christ has died, because Christ has risen, because Christ is coming back again, we have unity. 
and commitments like this. To take the body of Christ broken for us. To take the blood of Christ shed for us. To do this in remembrance of him. As we commit to do this each and every week. Not just in here, but in our relationships. In in the way that we treat each other. In our families. We are telling each other and we are showing the world what God is really like. So let's do this together, brothers and sisters. Let's take the body broken for us and the blood shed for us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are Lord of all. That you are judge of all. That you have the power to forgive all who call upon your name. Lord, we live in difficult and trying times, but these times are honestly no different than what your church has lived through before. And we pray for faithfulness in these times. We pray that as we do the hard work here in our community, our church community, to love each other, forgive each other, serve each other, lay our lives down for each other, We pray that you would make us people of light in our community and in our city. As those who do not know you struggle to understand what is right, to understand how to live, to understand how to make sense of all the craziness that's going on in our world, I pray that as we step out into our communities that we will be people of peace, people of reconciliation, People who demonstrate in word and in deed the power of the Spirit to change hearts. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who need guidance and who need help. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are still clinging to the ways of this world and seeing this world and understanding this world. We pray that your Spirit would move. Again, we pray that we would be people who preach peace and reconciliation. Who call our brothers and sisters to what is good and what is right and what most truly reflects you. Lord, keep us from becoming Pharisees. And looking down on others because we think we have it all together. Give us soft hearts, teachable hearts. So that we all may be sensitive to your spirit. Where you are directing us. To whom you are directing us. And like these folks in Jerusalem, we will praise your name. And we will give you the glory. Amen.